Welcome to a full bonus episode of Calm History. Now typically, bonus episodes are only a special treat for my Soak Plus members. But now, for a limited time, this bonus episode is an extra treat for everyone due to the sponsorship and inclusion of some third-party ads and promos. If you'd prefer to hear this episode and all of my bonus and archive episodes without any interruptions, then just use the link in the episode notes to become a Silk Plus member. Otherwise, just lean back, close your eyes, and enjoy this bonus episode, along with some very brief third-party ads or promos. Like this one. If you love history, then I know the ideal podcast for you. It's called For the Love of History. This perfectly named podcast is filled with world history, women's history, and weird history. Get ready for some bite-sized episodes that may be silly or serious. Topics include the history of the toothbrush, tattoos, cave nurses, ghost ships, warrior queens, and turkey gods. What? You don't know anything about turkey gods? Then you need to listen to the podcast for the love of history. Search for it now on your podcast player or use the link in the episode notes. All right, time to begin your bonus episode. I hope it distracts and relaxes your overactive brain squirrels. This is a story of a treasure hunt and also a treasure find. I usually think of treasure hunts as Sisyphean tasks with lots of looking, but in the end, there's no loot. I'm probably conditioned to think this way because I've been let down before. In 1984, a safe was recovered from the shipwreck of the SS Andrea Doria. They opened it on TV with much anticipation, but all it contained was a couple of water-soaked silver certificate papers. Boring. Peter Gimble, who recovered the safe and arranged the TV event, said the media felt ripped off because there wasn't a treasure. Yeah, der. A vault without a treasure is like a birthday party without a cake. It's just borderline criminal. In 1986, Geraldo Rivera would once again invite me to a grand party and not give me any cake. He hosted a TV special titled The Mystery of Al Capone's Vaults. It was a two-hour TV special that was going to show the live opening of a walled-off underground room 
in the Lexington Hotel in Chicago. This room was once owned by Al Capone, so expectations were high. It was hyped that the room could contain great riches or even dead bodies, all to be revealed on live television. There was even a medical examiner on hand in case bodies were found. Agents from the IRS were also standing by to collect any of Capone's money that might be discovered. When the vault was finally opened, the only things found inside were dirt and empty bottles. Yeah, all balloons, no cake. In 2014, I was once again suckered by the promise of a big treasure. The TV show, The Curse of Oak Island, aired on the History Channel. The hosts, the Lagina brothers, were in search of a rumored treasure on the island. Each episode was filled with a lot of digging, talking, and staring down into a hole in the ground. They called that hole the Money Pit, an appropriate name if it was filled with money. But in the last episode of the first season, they found one coin. One coin that is like licking the paper that once held a cupcake. In the second season, I think they found a button. I abandoned that show, but I think it's now in its ninth season. Hope is a powerful thing. But you won't need hope for today's bonus episode. Because... A big, fat, juicy treasure is going to be found. This party is going to have cake. Time for another quick break. Being a part of a royal family might seem enticing, but more often than not, it comes at the expense of everything else, like your freedom, your privacy, and sometimes, even your head. Wondry's new podcast, Even the Royals, pulls back the curtain on royal families, past and present, from all over the world, to show you the darker side of what it means to be royalty. From icons like Grace Kelly, Oscar-winning actress turned Princess of Monaco, who the world saw as the ultimate good girl. She mastered playing a happy wife and mother, but beneath it all, she was desperately lonely. Grace spent her whole life working towards perfection, and it ultimately cost her her happiness. Or King Ludwig II of Bavaria. He was only 18 when his father died, leaving the crown to him and a duty to rule that he never wanted. He refused to lead 
and used funds from the royal treasury to further his extreme love of opera. But this choice eventually cost him the crown and his life. Follow even the royals on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge even the royals at free right now on Wondery Plus. All right, back to the episode. It's now time for The Treasure Hunt of William Phipps. William Phipps was a man with many titles throughout his life. He was known as Sir William Phipps, Baronet, Captain in the Royal Navy, Captain General, Commander-in-Chief of Massachusetts Bay, and Governor of Massachusetts. What do you think of all these fancy-schmancy titles for one man to wear? Surely, you say, he must have been of high birth, reared in luxury, bathed in a silver tub, and his education overseen by erudites and wizards. Well, let's see what the facts have to say. William Phipps was born February 2nd, 1650, in an old and wretched log house in Maine. His father was an honest but not totally skilled blacksmith. His father was better at putting food on the table by using his rifle and fishing rod than by buying food with the occasional money he earned from his blacksmith workshop. Without education himself, his father was unable to instruct his children beyond the simplest rules of arithmetic and the plainest spelling and reading. But in these areas, he drilled them with perseverance and religious fervor. His children may not know calculus, but they could spell cat and shoe with great confidence. Over the years, William developed into a robust, courageous lad. He shared with his parents the duties of providing for his sisters and brothers by shouldering the heavy firearm and bringing home dinner. He also learned many of the skills of a blacksmith from his father. Maybe not so much the good business aspects, but definitely the raw skills. In the year 1676, at the age of 27, William received his parents' blessing and left home for the purpose of seeking his fortune. With a hopeful heart and a very light pocket, he made his way to Boston. There he found employment in the blacksmith shop of Roger Spencer and even won the heart of Roger Spencer's daughter, Mary. Now, I don't want to mislead you. There isn't going to be 20 minutes of swooning romantic passages here. He loved her. She loved him. 
There you go. I promised you a treasure hunt, not a harlequin romance. But I will sprinkle a little more true romance for you to nibble on in a bit. William quit his job at the blacksmith shop and hopped on board of a merchant vessel to follow the adventurous life of a sailor. When saying farewell, he gave his promise to return in a few years with money enough to build a fair brick house for his lady love Mary in one of the green lanes of Boston. How about that? Did that little romantic nugget make you swoon? And yes, don't worry. This romantic party will have cake at the end. So don't put your heart away just yet. But seriously, we have a treasure to find. The ship in which Phipps sailed carried cargo to the island of Jamaica. They then cruised between that port and England for several voyages. Owing to his industry and ability as a sailor, Phipps was after a time advanced to the position of mate. A voyage or two following his promotion, he made friends with an old sailor who told a curious tale. He claimed to be the only survivor of a Spanish vessel containing immense treasure that had been wrecked on one of the coral islands in the West Indies several years before. Don't worry. I don't think the island is Oak Island. Perhaps it is something more fanciful and optimistic, like Island of a Thousand Treasures. Yeah, that's where I would go looking for loot. Not some place named Oak Island or Island of the Dirty Button. Anyways, it appears that this treasure ship had sailed from the coast of South America, and it may have been the vessel named Conception. It was carrying a cargo of various treasures, including silver, which had been dug out of the mines and cast into silver bricks to be sent to Spain. The old sailor assured Mr. Phipps that the exact location of the wreck was known to him. He also agreed for a certain share of the profits to conduct an expedition to the place where the vessel had gone down. William agreed to this hope and promise of riches, and they teamed up to find the treasure. Upon arriving in London, William applied to the king for permission and aid to fit out a ship for the mission. He explained that it was to recover a great treasure that had been lost by the sinking of a Spanish galleon in the West Indies. This was, of course, a big ask. Not just anyone would be given a ship and financial backing by the king. Fortunately, in his earlier sailor years, he had found a couple of small wrecks 
with treasures. This may have been his biggest rodeo, but it wouldn't be his first one. He also brought letters of references to the king to support his stated experience. After considerable delay, a 20-gun frigate ship called the Algier Rose was placed under his command and with a crew of 90 men. Unfortunately, he wasn't given any other financial backing. He and his crew would be required to pay for all other expenses of the voyage, including food and diving equipment. He even had to give a deposit of 100 British pounds to the crown. Of the treasure they found, 35% would go to the king, and the rest would be divided among the otherwise unpaid crew. Was William disappointed? No way. Dude got a free ship. That would be like if someone gave you a free RV camper to go gamble your own money in Las Vegas. That there is a pretty good deal no matter what century you live in. William Phipps was now Captain Phipps, and he expected smooth sailing right to his pile of riches. But when he reached the West Indies, a mutiny broke out on his ship. Captain Phipps had to stop at Jamaica, discharge the whole crew, and recruit a new company. He once again headed for the scene of the wreck, expecting smooth sailing to his pile of riches. Yeah, you know this ain't gonna happen. A day or two later, the carpenter on the ship informed him that he had overheard a plot. His crew were going to take over his ship as soon as the treasure was recovered and then use it as a pirate vessel. Captain Phipps immediately decided to return to England, where he arrived after a stormy passage. Under the patronage of a duke, the ship was refitted and a trustworthy crew put on board. Once again, Captain Phipps whistled a happy tune with visions of smooth sailing to his loot. Okay, I don't know if he actually whistled a happy tune. I made that up for some visual irony because you and I know that this thing is about to go sideways once again. After crossing the Atlantic, he entered the Caribbean Sea and encountered a new danger that threatened his mission. Early one morning, they encountered a large Spanish frigate, which at once started in chase. Captain Phipps addressed his crew, telling them that if they permitted their ship to be captured by these attackers, that they would probably sell them all as slaves. He urged them to fight bravely if they wished to enjoy home 
and freedom ever again. Regardless, if this was true or not, that there is some quick thinking by sly Captain Phipps. The superior speed of this Spanish frigate soon enabled that vessel to open fire on the Algier Rose. Captain Phipps and his highly motivated men held their waters, returned fire, and bested the attacker. Without further trouble, the treasure hunters finally reached the island of interest. This was the place that the galleon full of silver had shipwrecked on some treacherous coral reefs. The Algier rose safely moored and the search commenced for the sunken wealth. Time for another quick break. In the 1950s, the greatest singer in Iran was known as the Nightingale of Iran. He sang at the Shah's palace, on the radio, and at all the top venues reserved for a celebrity singer. His son even became a teen idol on TV. But at the height of their fame, the Nightingale of Iran gathered up his family and suddenly left his country behind. Today, his granddaughters are revealing the painful secrets that have gone unspoken for generations. To hear this riveting story, just search for the podcast, The Nightingale of Iran, in your podcast player, or use the link in the episode notes. All right, back to the episode. The crew climbed into small boats to explore the reefs. The water in these places seldom exceeded 20 feet in depth, so the ocean floor would have been plainly visible by just looking over the sides of these small boats. But the continuous rippling and foaming of the surface water as it sloshed over the coral obscured the view of the ocean floor. So the crew used these boats as platforms from which the best swimmers would dive into the waters between the walls of coral and look around for the sunken treasure. Several weeks were passed in a vain pursuit. At last, worn out and discouraged, the men refused to continue the work. Captain Phipps had to make a deal with the crew. If the treasure wasn't found within one week, then he would happily abandon the searching and set sail for England. The crew agreed, and several members agreed to continue to search for the remainder of the time. Day after day went by, and in the seventh and last day arrived. Two of the divers had broken down under the strain during this week 
and refused to dive one last day. Captain Phipps called out for two other men to dive in their place, but no one responded. He pleaded and begged for one more diver for this last day, but still the dispirited crew remained silent. At last, a crew member of African descent volunteered. He initially was brought into the ship in England as a cabin servant, but then was promoted to cook when the ship's cook took ill and died on the passage out. Now, this bold man of thirty years was ready for his next challenge, to plunge into the surrounding water and find the elusive treasure. He had a powerful physique and was an excellent swimmer, so he went at this task with confidence and zeal. Captain Phipps and his crew watched the cook search the coral edges and valleys tirelessly. He would dive into the sea and a few moments later reappear, dive and reappear, dive and reappear. Each time he reappeared, he shook his head in disappointment towards Captain Phipps. The cook and his adjoining boat continued to search throughout the waters. The morning passed, the afternoon passed, and now the evening had fallen. The cook took one of his final dives before everyone was going to row back to the main ship for dinner. Suddenly, the cook's face broke through the water's surface, his eyes wide open, while his mouth drew in air. He was swinging his arms and gasping for air in a way that clearly conveyed excitement rather than danger. He managed to finally yell out, Down there, down there, while pointing to the ocean floor underneath him. The great treasure was discovered. No more despondency. No more aching limbs. The crew was energized. They tore off their scanty clothing and jumped over the side, one after another. Splash. 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 Each man wanted to see with their own eyes the story what laid below. One by one the men resurfaced, shouting and yelling with such joy that it was probably heard a mile away. The crew had finally witnessed the ingots of silver scattered over the white sand amid the torn and broken remnants of the wrecked ship. During the two weeks that followed, the crew of the Algier Rose worked with fervor 
they probably worked as hard to recover the silver as the Spaniards had worked to get the silver out of the mountains. A shallow network bag was hitched together by the crew for the purpose of holding the bars of silver that the divers would throw into it. A special floating raft was also constructed and anchored directly above the wreck. Those manning the float would lower the rope cradle until it rested on the bottom. Then a diver would thrust his feet into a pair of heavy lead shoes and drop through the hole in the center of the raft. An instant later, when the bed of sand was reached, the diver would quickly throw silver bars into the basket, followed by his lead shoes. Without the pull of his weighted shoes, the diver could now resurface quickly. When the men on the boat saw the diver resurface, they knew the net was ready to be hauled up. The treasures would be taken out of the net and passed to the small boats to be ferried back to the Algier Rose. The crew happily performed these systematic duties for 14 days in a row until the last bit of treasure was recovered from the sea. In the end, Captain Phipps calculated that they had recovered 34 tons of treasure, which included silver bars, silver coins, doubloons, jewelry, a small amount of gold, and other artifacts. The Algier Rose, like most ships, kept stones in her lower hold to give her stability and ballast. But now, she had a more valuable ballast to replace that weight. The ballast stones were thrown into the ocean and replaced with the silver treasure. The Algier Rose now sailed for England with Captain Phipps expecting smooth sailing on the way home. And this time, his hope was fulfilled. He arrived in England five weeks from the day that the crew had extracted the last sunken loot from the waters of their treasure island. The total value of the treasure was about 200,000 British pounds. About 25% of it went to the Duke, who helped him refit his ship and his crew after the mutiny. Other portions went to the crew of the ship and to others. In the end, it is believed that William Phipps received 11,000 British pounds of the treasure. Not too bad of a haul for that time in history. Surprisingly, the king didn't take 35%, but instead only took 471 British pounds. This is extra surprising, 
because that didn't even cover the wear and tear that William Phipps put on the ship he was loaned, which was estimated at 700 British pounds. Perhaps he had just earned the favor of the king. Sure enough, the king was so pleased with him for bringing such wealth into the country that he conferred on him the honor of knighthood. Captain William Phipps now became Sir William Phipps. The king also wanted to reward him for defeating the Spanish man-of-war ship, so his majesty granted him a commission as captain in the Royal Navy. Sir William soon sailed for Boston in command of a fine frigate. A few months later, the former blacksmith's boy redeemed his promise by presenting to his Lady Mary a fair brick house in one of the green lanes of Boston. In 1690, the king made William Phipps Captain General and Commander-in-Chief of Massachusetts Bay, and several years later, he became Governor of Massachusetts. Did his treasure hunting end there? No, but maybe his treasure finding did. It is reported that he returned later to the site of the shipwreck to try to find more treasure, but he was unable to. Or perhaps he did find more treasure. This is where the story gets really weird for me, because I discovered something after writing this that I didn't anticipate. When I first read this story, I immediately thought of modern treasure-hyped stories, like the one I talked about with Geraldo Rivera in the TV show The Curse of Oak Island. And that was the only reason that I put that information at the beginning of this story. After I finished writing this story about William Phipps, I went searching through the internet once again, just for any additional details that I might be able to sprinkle in. And that is when I came across something that kind of blew my mind. Another Google search for William Phipps brought me to a sub-page on the website for the TV show The Curse of Oak Island. Near the bottom of that sub-page, I found these two paragraphs that stated a possible connection between the treasure of Oak Island and the treasure of William Phipps. Here it is. Quote, In 1685, William Phipps was granted rights by the King of England to seek the conception and recover its treasure or that of any other treasure found in the area. Returning to England in 1687 with over 68,000 pounds of silver, he was knighted for his efforts and returned to the wreck 
with additional ships, although little additional treasure was reported to be found. Those who applauded Phipps' activities during and subsequent to this period suggest that he had the time and the resources to construct a money pit on Oak Island. He did this in order to hide the additional treasure which had actually been recovered from the conception. In 1690, we find him attacking Port Royal and Quebec, so he was well acquainted with these waters, as were many mariners of the day. A great hoard of Spanish treasure, recovered by the English, and resting at the bottom of the money pit. As plausible as a theory, as any other it would seem. End quote. Many years ago, I stopped watching that Oak Island show because I was tired of wasting my time wondering if there was a treasure at the bottom of that hole they kept looking over. But here I am again, thinking about the potential treasure at the bottom of that hole. Hmm. Maybe I'll go check out season three to see if they've found some of William Phipps' treasure. Hope is a powerful thing. This is the end of the episode. I hope you enjoyed this bonus episode of Calm History.